This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Then I learned this is the approach. I cannot go to a publisher and say, look, I have an idea. I can show you something here. And if you're interested, I work it out. Never, ever, never. What you need to do is you need to sit down and work it out to the perfectionism you can give it. You have mm. the first aim and then it will be published. They say never meet your heroes, but in this case, they're wrong. How does the most prolific board game designer come up with and develop his next game? Ryder Knizia is a giant in board game design. His games dominate my collection, and all I need is his name on a box for me to buy a game. I learned his background and why he gravitated towards mathematics. I enjoyed learning how he decides which ideas to develop and which ideas to shelve. Stick around because he shares the story of when Richard Garfield showed him an early version of Magic the Gathering. The advice he gave Richard might surprise you. The opportunity to interview Reiner is a dream come true for me. Now, his audio isn't perfect, but you'll find the insights that he shares worth your time. It was very kind of him to come on, and he is very generous with his wisdom. Now, this episode, like all the content coming from the third floor, is made possible because of patrons. I want to welcome a couple of the newest members of our Patreon. Mary McCurtry, Roland Suljic, Restored Thought, Mato Automato, GM Scott, Stephen Palmer, Kenneth Kosherek, and Kyle Nyberg. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Reiner. Okay, you want to see if you can tell if they're lying to you? Go ahead and roll. Ugh, sorry, you missed by three. Uh, yeah, you think they're telling the truth. This is Sean. And this is Navi. And together we're a couple of Drakes, the creators of Court of Blades and Dead Bell. When we're not writing games, we're listening to Tabletop Top. Top. Toppy Top Top. <laughs> Don't try that again. <laughs> when we're not writing games, we're listening to Tabletop Talk. Welcome to Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. Your host, Craig Shipman. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today I'm talking with Reiner Knizia, the award-winning designer of over 700 board games. For me and many others, finding a game designed by Reiner makes it an instant buy for our collection. Some of my all-time favorite board games came from him, including Tigers and Euphrates, Through the Desert, and Lost Cities, and honestly, I could list about 50 other ones, to be perfectly honest with you. I was on BGG yesterday in preparation for this, and I got to be honest with you, Reiner, there was like seven games that I own that I just didn't connect that they were your games. But it was like, oh, of course they are. It makes total sense. So, Reiner, welcome to the third floor. Well, thank you for inviting me. Reiner, what I like to do is um, when I talk to creatives, I like to get a sense of their origin story to get an idea of how we got to where you are today. So um, what I would love to do is that at some point you and your life. And I would imagine it could be, you know, in your younger years, you knew nothing about, you know, board games. And I would love to get a sense of when was the first time board games became part of your life? Can we go back there? Yes. Uh, my story is a little bit different because as far as I can remember, board games have always been part of my life. Uh, of course, it was uh, the early, very well-known games of uh, Monopoly. I was fascinated by these piles of money uh, <laughs> and, uh, I played as long as I can remember. Uh, I grew up in a small town in southern Bavaria, and the 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 only shop that sold games was the bar. And he had a reduced. <laughs> yeah, that was it at the times, and uh, there there was quite a reduced uh, selection. Uh, and of course, my pocket money was quite uh, restricted as well. But I have always played. Of course, you have to imagine that was the time pre-internet. That right. was the time pre-desktop publishing. So um, there wasn't much around. I mean, we we started then to play by mail, and that was real mail. Just days to to get to the other side, 
and magazines were played by mail. So uh, it wasn't so easy to get to the different uh, games. And of course, there were larger cities around where I could go to the bigger shops. But I was maybe six years old, seven years <laughs> old. So it wasn't that I drive to the to the neighbor town. It was a very different world, and it was a step by step, the, almost the greed for capturing new games. Yes, because right. there wasn't so much around, but they have always been there. So looking back at it as an adult now, Reiner, when you think about how much you. Uh, uh, enjoyed board games when you were young. Do you have a sense of why that is? Um, so why was somebody at your, at that age, um, with not a, a very limited access and supply, what was it that caught you and made you love them so much as a kid? I don't think there's a real explanation for that because, you know, there is this saying that you have to spend 10,000 hours or whatever uh, to become a master in something. And I think there are people who are drawn into sports very early. There are people who are drawn into painting very early. And if you let the child develop, uh, mm. then I think they, they have a chance to become a master in that. Uh, and it's good that we are not all having the same favors, because <laughs> otherwise we might all get game designers. What a terrible world. Yes. But uh, so it's, it's it's just lucky that I I could follow my, my calling in a way. And I managed to then bring that to the foreground over the decades. And, and mathematics is obviously a, a big part of you for uh, or what you're known for from a design perspective. And I think if we, you know, we go through and look at your career, uh, mathematics was a big part of it. Did you also have a passion for mathematics from the very beginning? I had a passion and I still have the passion for the sciences. I am yeah. a science, a scientist in my mind. Um, and of course, that everybody sees the world differently. There is no absolute <laughs> world, yes. And so I think a scientist sees the world slightly different than a writer or a painter uh, and or a psychologist. Uh, and even so, psychology may be science. Um, <laughs> so uh, with this respect, uh, these were my favorite subjects at school. My favorite subject actually was uh, physics. Interesting. And if I may tell you an anecdote, what brought me then to mathematics? Um, so, of course, I, I, I was quite okay in mathematics as well, and I liked it. Uh, but then when I went to, to, to study at the university, I decided for physics. And a friend of mine, who was one of my classmates, decided to go for mathematics at the same university. And so I decided that, well, in physics, you need a lot of Mathematics. So why don't I go to the same courses as him as well and get the mathematical education? Um, I, I was lucky that I could learn very easily. So things fell into place for me. And then I had this one topic, the Einstein's relativity theory, which I could not understand at school. And I had a teacher who was actually a great mentor for me, the physics teacher. But he could not explain that one thing in relativity theory to me. So I actually was fascinated when I saw towards the end of the first semester in mechanics, um, there is relativity theory. And it is absolutely true. When we came to the topic, I did not understand it. So I said, it's not a problem. I go to the tutor. And I talked with the tutor and it took 10 minutes and he was confused. So he said, okay. <laughs> do that. It, it's real. I see it really in front of my eyes. Um, and so he says, no, no, let's go to the assistant and uh, assistant professor. So, and let's, uh, let's sort this out. And it took about 20 minutes to confuse him. And <laughs> uh, they, they didn't want to, and it was a, a relatively small and very much so to personal university, which I loved very much, the personal relationships. And that's what you need in learning. And so we decided, let's go to the professor. And so I know we, we wrote the like little ducklings one after the other to the professor. He was indeed there. He invited us in and we discussed the topic. And after half an hour, he was confused. <laughs> but you know, if, if, you, if you spend years on this problem and work yourself into it, you work yourself down these blind alleys, which are very well yeah. explained and very well reasoned. And so this was a great, great disappointment for me. And this was the cornerstone of me saying, no, I'm giving up physics 
uh, I will go for the exact part, and that is the mathematics. So I simply switched over to uh, mathematics. In a way, physics wasn't quite as exact as I wanted it. So for a while, I called it the the systematic sloppiness of not being completely exact when you do experimental physics, which is right. So I found I'm not the experimentalist. I'm more the theorist. Uh, so a long answer to this, but um, mathematics and physics has always been of interest for me. The sciences have always been of interest to me. And I think that not that I'm aware of it uh, and not that I'm doing it intentionally, but of course that also probably comes out in my handwriting in games. Right, right. I'm sure it would have a huge influence. So complete aside, as we're talking about this period in your life, Reiner, um, you're probably one of the few people uh, in Germany that knows the town Skinny Atlas. Uh, it is one of the Finger Lakes uh, and one of the uh, just outside of Syracuse, which is uh, I noted that you went to Syracuse University when I saw that. Um, uh, that's, that's where I grew up is in that small town. Yeah. So, Reiner, when you, um, you know, there's a lot of people that played board games as a kid. Uh, there's a lot of people that um, had a passion for it. I'm one of them. What's different is I have never had a desire to create a game. There's enough games out there. I, I am satisfied being a player of a game, but that didn't appear to be the case for you. So uh, I'm wondering if you have a sense of when that itch started to emerge where you said, I think I want to make a game. Do you remember that? Yes, uh, for different reasons I did that, because it goes back to my barber time uh, when there wasn't enough around and I had so much enthusiasm for certain themes, the car racing, Formula One racing. Uh, and so I said, okay, I'll just do it myself. Yes. So I started modeling things, modeling, mathematics, uh, all the interests coming together. And so I built my own games and I played merely to play them with my friends. Right. And and never had the idea of publishing them. Uh, but I enjoyed that. And uh, the games actually worked when you were nice to them. So when you were willing to play them properly and as they were intended, they were nice. Of course, you could break them easily, but that right. wasn't, uh, that wasn't the, the, the purpose of these games. Yes, that's something else today. So... Again, I liked it. I, we, we, we played a lot of, I remember when we played uh, in my teens, even early 20s, we played a lot of different games. Partially they were, uh, of course, published games. Partially they were mind games. It was purely for the enjoyment of mm -hmm. the game. But you, you ended up designing beyond the table, right? So just beyond creating games for your friends, creating, creating games for um you know, to fill a need due to a lack of supply for your voracious uh, mm -hmm. uh, need for games. When did when did you first go? I think somebody other than my friend wants to play this. When did you first expose something you made beyond your circle? Yeah, the the first attempt was actually in the play by mail uh, ah. environment because. Uh, I mean, play, play by mail, maybe I need to explain that to some of the younger <laughs> listeners, uh, is that you pick a, a game, usually a board game, and then uh, you have one game master and everybody else uh, thinks about their turn and then sends a letter with the turn. The game master uh, takes all the turns, puts them into new, the new board situation and sends out a magazine monthly. Uh, what a pain to take one turn a month or every four uh, every fortnight. So you had to pick the right games. Uh, and just playing the standard uh, board games was not possible. And what's, what was what so annoying is that one player then did not hand in their move. No move received. Yes, NMR was always that it didn't work. So I decided... Well, why can't I create, because there is this big universe, why can't I create games which can be played by any number of players? So really open it up, open a marketplace, have something there, and then have something when you don't end your, your move, it's only to your own disadvantage, but because there are so many players and the mechanism is robust, the others may have laughed, but they certainly don't suffer. 
And so we had, for example, a Formula One motor racing game, and you could either concentrate on developing um, engines or chassis or tires. You could be uh, a, an agent for the drivers. Uh, you could so you could do very different things and specialize, and you can put them interact. And if you had good tires, you could sell them for good stuff. You could do more stuff. Uh, or I had a political game, so I had lots of different games in this own magazine. Um, and that was, in a way, where I reached more people. Interesting. But the interesting thing is also, then I went to Essen, the big game convention, for the first time. And at that time, I realized Play by Mail is not really my heart. So I then quickly found somebody that was during university times who wanted to take over the magazine. The magazine ran actually for quite some decades afterwards, then wow. played by email and so on and so on. Um, but uh, I said I want to concentrate more on uh, the board games. And I made some very ignorant, amateurish attempts and put some of my games into an envelope and sent them to Ravensburger, essentially, and I got a nice letter uh, turned me down because they weren't fit for publishing and they weren't presented. In them. It was only, I know my answers are always very long, it was only when I actually finished university and went to a trainee program uh, with a bank. So, tax of money, I said, tax of money, yes. So, yeah. we are in the bank. Um, and one of my uh, stages in that trainee program was actually in Nuremberg, where the Nuremberg Toy Fair is to be good. Yeah. And it was, I have to say, my most boring <laughs> stage in the trainee program because it was in the credit department. And it was actually the seller. And it was dark. And the people, it's a spider webs where everything and then you had these big folders, which were the credit folders, hundreds of pages, and nobody was interested in me. Uh, but I was actually able to join some of the credit meetings where people came in and wanted money from the bank. And right. what I learned then, then is when people came and said, look, if you gave me the money, I could work out a nice plan and I think I could do something with it, could and could and could. These people never got the money. Right. When people came in and said, okay, this is the plan. I've done this and this and this. This is all already running. So all I need is the money. Give me the money and it's all there. These people got the money. And then I learned this is the approach. I cannot go to a publisher and say, look, I have an idea. I can show you something here. And if you're interested, I work it out. Never, ever, never. What you need to do is you need to sit down and work it out to the perfectionism you can give it. You have mm. the first game. And then it will be published. And that was a big, big learning there. Um, so out of this very boring uh, two months <laughs> in Nuremberg came a, a, one of the, my most important insights for life and for my success in game design. Uh, to, to, to present a, a game that's been baked, right? A, a game that was, that was complete and, and, and could be shown. You have to invest first or, or sow out first before you can yeah. read the it's, it's, It is what it is. Yes. So, Reiner, do you do you know what is it that made made you? I mean, because this is a this is a big revelation for you. It turned into uh, a tremendous amount of work, and it sounds like a labor of love. But 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 why? Do you know why? Why, why were you driven to say I want to get a game published by a publisher? Do you have a sense of of, of where that need comes from, or what what it satisfies for you? I mean. It's quite clear when you are in the games and when you develop your own games and you see all these games around there. And I saw Alex Randolph and Sid Saxon. And I said, my, this would be, I mean, as people dream of writing their own book and they write stories. Uh, so, of course, that was something which, which, uh, which was just the next logical step from being sure. an enthusiast of designing my own games. So, Reiner, and you were a big part of this, but you also were there as it was happening. Um, you know, I think back to 20 years ago uh, where board games were, uh, especially here in the States. Uh, uh, you and Europe were way ahead of us on the board game front. But uh, what has happened in the last couple decades uh, for board games is, is nothing short of a golden age and a revolution. Um, and I, being somebody who was a part of that and not only as a contributor, but as a witness, I would love to hear 
why you think this has happened. So what do you think has changed? I mean, we've got greater technology now, video games and everything, but somehow in the last decade or so, we have gravitated back to the table. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on why you think that is. Well, if I go back a little bit longer, then I think globalization and the, 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 the communication media, but also the possibilities in, in, in production and transporting and, and serving global markets did a lot to a first interchange because mm. initially when I traveled to the US and looked at the games, they were much more themed. I mean, um, Dungeons and Dragons is a typical uh, example where you essentially are happy to use the same mechanism, the same mechanics all over again, and the theme drives it. Whereas in Europe, if you use the same mechanism again, you were copying yourself, and it's, it's. I mean, it's. It goes as far as I went to the US. I showed a game. They, I took it out. They said, "Oh, Egypt. We already have a game about Egypt." No, thank you. <laughs> I take the same game a few weeks later. Show them it to a German publisher. They say, "Oh, interesting. We already have a game about Egypt, but it doesn't matter." Um, the theme. Let us see the game first. Yes. Right. So the game was the mechanism there. The game was the theme on the other side, and I think that. In these chimneys developed different different universes of games. And then the interchange started. And I think Rio Grande games played a big part mm. in that, in taking a lot of European games and bringing them to the US. And then other publishers followed. And suddenly, uh, America saw this other type of games and saw this these exciting, deeper, engaging mechanisms uh, and so it was just a new door opened, which I think then with all the markets which were, were open, led to the enthusiasm for these games, which the European games are not bad. <laughs> yes, they're good. And the same thing with the American games. And if you look at collectible card games, then they came over, of course, but in a later period uh, uh, from America to Europe. But again, that was in a, in a full sweep because uh, Richard Garfield just took took the world by surprise after disregarding my recommendation to forget the game because it will never fly. Oh, no. <laughs> I visited him in, uh, in Seattle in his house and he showed me the game. And I said, ah, it's complicated. It's no easy access. This is not going to fly. So Isn't that funny? Always, always trust the experts, yes. <laughs> well, so that's a very interesting story, Reiner. I did not realize that. Um, so, <laughs> so you were wrong, right? <laughs> Obviously, Magic the Gathering turned out to be a. Oh yes, I'm totally wrong. I have lots of erasers here, and they're always very small because I have to erase so much things I write down. I only write in pencil, as you can see. The poor listeners can't just. Well, but but looking back. Do you have a, did you miss something about it or did you misjudge the market when you, when you look back at, at what you saw, do you have a sense of why you didn't see what Richard did and obviously ended up having huge success? I'd be curious if you've, if you've looked back at that, uh, that take you had. Uh, clearly I was right. Richard was just very lucky and then, no, it's not true. Uh, the, you know, there are so many different views how to look at a game. And for me, in my scientific mind, I like simple rules. I like principles mm. um, where you can essentially intuitively base yourself on, okay, these are the rules and this is my role. And if I'm a pharaoh, I know what I do as a pharaoh. So uh, I, I, I'm somebody as a scientist who reduces redundancy and, and brings it down to some point. Whereas storytellers uh, do the opposite, yes. They create lots of redundancy. And I think the, the, the collectible card games, Magic, the Gathering, is an archetype of, no, you just don't sit down and start playing. It's actually this whole meta dimension which makes the game so successful. And I go home and I study it and I prepare my deck and so on. So it's a completely new dimension of, of, of game, which I did not grasp. And this mm. is... This is the real innovations we can introduce into games. Uh, you know, cards have been around for a long time. I mean, this is, uh, games are a mirror of our time. 
And whatever happens in our lives immediately was very soon happens in, in the game. So when mm. the Chinese invented the paper, soon they had paper cards. Yes, they did. And so again, then you would say the cards have been along for such a long time. So how can you make something new? Yes. And then comes along a deck builder and then comes around this and this. Um, and uh, Richard comes around with his, uh, his idea to, to build something completely, something very innovative, which isn't, you know, people sometimes think innovation needs to be something completely different. It looks like a banana. No, it doesn't. It is something which we have, but it's another way to look at it, another way to handle it, something else to do with it. And yeah, so I judged it with a very narrow view and Richard had the wider view. Um, lucky him. You make your own luck. I agree. So um, before we move on and take a break and then talk about your design process, there's one, one question uh, I have left, which is, Reiner, with a, a huge library, um, and that's only the games that have been published, I can't imagine how many things are still in notebooks and still in prototypes and things that you abandoned. But but looking back at that extensive library, um, are there some earlier games that even now, as you have developed as a creator and as a designer, the person who's making games now is not the person who's making games in the early 90s, right? You're a different person, and a different designer. When you look back at some of your earlier games, is there any games that still stand out to you where you go, wow, I really, I really still am very proud of this game and I still think it's a great game. Um, what are some of the standouts of your earlier games for you now? Yeah. So my games are my children. So you're now asking myself for my favorite children. But these, all the games are grown up so they can take it. I think you, you mentioned one of the, one of, of my favorites, which is uh, Tigers and Euphrates or Euphrates and Tigers. It, it actually was for, for a number of years, number one on the board game geek list. Yep. And it's, it's, it is still, fascinating to play it for me uh, but you also um, mentioned other games i mean through the desert for me is something where i say oh i sit there it's an archetype for me because life is great and life has too many opportunities uh, then we can all follow through and i expect this from a game i don't want the game and sit there oh what's the least worst move and nothing to do and through the desert kind of symbolizes that to me because I sit there and I bite on my fingernails and hopefully this isn't happened. I need to do this and there's only two moves and so many things to do. So with this respect, um, I, I, I am also very fond on, on through the desert. But I mean, you know, my, my tiling games in the 90s have won many awards and they yeah. are, and there's a samurai and there's a uh, a whole raft of them essentially who are still being republished and republished and live until today because I think they have their relevance. And so I'm very proud of them, but I also know these are laurels from the very old days. So uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. So guys, the insider insight series is my opportunity to sit down with creators, designers, and developers and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their, their process, their inspirations and methods. And we're going to do that a little bit more with Reiner on the other side of this break. We'll be right back. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Oh, uh, hey, it's me. Um, I'm interrupting this episode. And I hope you're enjoying it, and I bet you're anxious to hear the rest. But before we jump back, I need a favor. Do you know someone who might enjoy this episode? Can you shoot them a quick message or maybe even send them a link to it? Listeners sharing this podcast was the primary reason we almost doubled our audience last year. Also, would you like to see and hear these games in action? 
go to the Third Floor Wars YouTube channel and Twitch stream. Our actual plays combine compelling role-playing, character-driven action, and system tutorials. We create great stories while lifting the hood and showcasing the game mechanics. Links to both are in the show notes. Okay, last thing, and I mean it. Have you rated this podcast on your pod platform yet? Maybe even written a short review? It is a simple way for you to be even more awesome than you already are. Okay, now I'm done. Let's jump back and listen to the rest of this episode. So, Reiner, one of the things that um, I like to do on the podcast is, you know, not just talk about what you make, but I like to try to get some insight uh, for the audience on, on how you make it. And, and this is this is an awfully unfair question for me to ask you, right? Because, you know, many times my guests have made two or three games. Um, so I want to try to frame this uh, in a way that we can have this discussion. And I'd like to I'd like you to take the lead on that. Would it be easier to talk about the process, talking about a specific game, maybe a more recent game? Um, versus talking just generically and theoretically? I think we can talk uh, generically as well because okay. if people don't know the individual game, then it's harder to follow. Perfect. Um, yes. A game does not exist. Mm-hmm. And I would like to get a sense of where the first seed t- tends to pop up, right? So where's the first acorn that later becomes a game uh, for you? I think... It is usually quite hard to sit in front of a quite empty sheet of paper or wherever you do that and try to come up with the next brilliant idea. But, and that's not how my process really works because I, of course, work, always work on a number of different games and we develop them, we discuss them, we test them. Uh, of course, you need a lot of playtests, but we'll come to this later. Uh, and the process of doing some games always sparks off other ideas. And say, oh, mm. This is another route, and all this and so on. So um, for me, it is never the empty sheet of paper. For me, it is more, yeah, the curse of the ideas uh, because yeah, there are so many, and it's but it's also good because I said life is great because there are so many things to do, and you have to pick the right ones and. The, the curse of these many ideas also lets me, gives me the ability to select what I then think is the most promising. So what makes it promising for you, Reiner? How, do, how does that happen? Yeah. Um, I think this is one of the advantages of experience. Mm. as we just discussed with Magic Together Gathering. Um, <laughs> this is uh, one of the experience to say, Will this actually be publishable? Is this just another game? Just another game was publishable 20 years ago. But, but today, every publisher wants something else. If you do a soccer game, uh, people are fascinated. So people take soccer because they're fascinated by soccer. It's unsellable, essentially. <laughs> people will prove me wrong because um, soccer or football or whatever you would take, is something which is fast moving, which is thrilling, uh, engaging. And once you put it down onto an abstract board with uh, some strategic moves, uh, it just doesn't reflect it. So it is understanding what can actually be transformed, what can what can be sold. Uh, will a publisher sometimes is a self fulfilling prophecy? People said abstract games don't sell, and then came Blockus and uh, Ingenious, and suddenly everybody wanted a, um, a, a an abstract game. So. Um, the experience helps to see what can be positioned by the publishers, with the publishers, uh, but it is also the very, very strict and disciplined look, is there something new? Is this mm. just a, Many of my games by publishers get rejected. They say, we had lots of fun. It plays very well. It's a fun game, but there's nothing really special about it, you know. It's uh, and so I mean, how can we see hundreds of novelties? How can every novelty stand out? Yes, but that is the ambition of the publishers. So this is also a look of saying, okay, this could be a nice standard box, and again, could be a lot of fun, but 
will it be a breakthrough game? Not everything can be a breakthrough game, but sometimes I'm convinced it's okay, but it is fun and we do it. Um, but uh, put the ladder, put the put the hurdle very high to where are we going? When so you 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 have the seed, you say to yourself, okay, I've of all these ideas in front of me, I think this one is the most promising, and this is the one I'm going to focus on, and I'm going to develop and work on. Can you give me a sense of what happens before anybody else sees this? So there's a period of time between you identifying the promising idea and another human being being exposed to it, and I, I, what happens during that time for you? Um, just a little. Preambles to this. It's not always like this. A lot of these ideas come up in discussions uh, ah. where we talk about a game and uh, bring something in, or we are actually actively searching for new methods, novelties. Uh, and so, very often that would be in a discussion. But mm. it doesn't matter where the where the original seed comes from, because um, in a way, Hemingway said something very nice: in order to write, in order to write a great writer. You need to live. So it's keep your eyes open and see what is relevant for the people. What is relevant for the people, they want to see in the games. What they consider not relevant, they don't want to see in the games. Yes? So that is the starting point, but that goes back to your last question. So in a way, for me, designing, getting an initial design is really sitting down and closing my eyes and putting myself into the place and seeing a player left, right, maybe opposite, and saying, okay, it's now my turn. So it's closed eyes. I see the board or whatever is in front of me. I see my turn. I ask myself, okay, why am I biting my fingernails? So why, what's happening here? Why am I excited? What are my options? What do I do when it's the next player's turn? Uh, so I'm just sitting there and waiting for it. And so I actually play the game in my head, in a, mm. in a way, in a very... Uh, simple form uh, to see the main mechanism or the main novelty that is there. So you have components, you have uh, theme, you have mechanisms, and it, there are different drivers of novelty. Uh, but it's essentially looking at it and saying, does that feel right? Uh, can I do something? Um, and then I would... If I think it does, then I would actually get quite specific in the details and say, okay, what would the card's value be? Or what would the board look like? Um, open up uh, the PC and actually a lot of designing these days also happens when I just start building this thing. So I, mm. I, I, I do the cards, I do the whatever it is to the board. Can I actually have such a board, such a topology? Can I have something like that? And so, um, can I get all the parameters of the card? How would I show that that is always the card? I mean, it's not only a standard card, is it double sided? If it's hidden, what, how do I arrange this? And so, it's a process of trial and error in the head, plus a trial and error in the desktop publishing, which we have, mm -hmm. uh, until I think there could be a prototype to play then and then i would actually write down the rules so i write down the rules before it's even played because writing down the rules is a great discipline of thinking through everything not leaving any gaps forcing you to be clear and also seeing oh ooh, ooh, there is a gap here i cannot handle this how do i decide this uh, and make a prototype you play it um the, the problem with this process is that usually if I go that far, these games always play perfectly in my head. And then comes <laughs> the appointment around the play table, so I always need to embrace myself. It's not going to be as good. Sometimes it is, and then I'm very happy, but usually it isn't. Uh, and then that's normal. So it sounds like the playtesting process can often expose gaps that you were blind to because because of the uh, of, you know, where you were up to that point and having someone other than you attacking it in general, though, from the playtesting process, what what value or what do you value the most from that process? What what does playtesting uh, offer you and offer your games the most? I think that playtesting is the core part of gaming. 
Interesting. You, I cannot calculate it mathematically, the fun of games. It is, it needs to be experienced. Therefore, I'm never giving away my games for blind playtests. I will always be part of the playtest. We always one table, we playtest it. Um, I know that I can make the game exciting when I play the clown, <laughs> but I will be usually playing a more a passive role and see how things develop, but I want to be part of it. And my best playtesters are those whom I continuously want to stay on because <laughs> they, they put the finger, I mean, they put the finger into the thing and say, no, this isn't, I don't like it, and this doesn't work, and I'm waiting too long, and, this, and so on. And this is very important because, you know, we're all in the entertainment business, but I'm not on the stage. I put the entertainment in the boxes, and then people open the box, and then they expect the entertainment to come out. I'm not there and say, oh, but you should do it differently. So that all needs to be done up front. This is, again, the thoroughly investing, testing, making a perfect game, and then uh, getting it in front of the consumer. So this is, this is a long, long process of testing. The initial tests, if it goes well, uh, really shatter the game, and lots of things happen from one to the next. And then as we go further... There are only minute changes and uh, little optimizations. Um, but essentially, when you look at the overall process, what I like to do in the beginning is I want to have a really disruptive in innovation. Yes, so something, my, there is always, if I start with something new, I have the best chances to end up with something new. If I trample along the same path, therefore, game design is not a science, it is an art, it's an art. Yeah. And so start with this. And then, of course, it is more this iterative improvement, bit by bit by bit, making it better. But if you start with very little, then you make very little better. So this is, uh, this is the, the, the two elements which kind of meander from one side into the other side. When do you stop, though? Right. When do you say playtesting is over? This is the rules are written. This is ready. Do you have a sense of when you know to put the pencil down? Um, if we play it a few times and have nothing we want to change, yeah, and are still very enthusiastic about the game, then what will happen is that I put the game down for maybe four weeks and then I get it out once again. So that I have a bit of a distance because you can get too close and you need to play with many different people. Otherwise you develop conventions and then yeah. uh, with my grandmother, I always play wonderfully, <laughs> but you have to play it this way. No. So it needs to be different people. And after four weeks, I'm distant enough to this and then we play it again and I see, okay, I'm still happy with it or I see something which I want to still adapt and change. And then when I say I write up the rules very early, this is a handwriting. I make so many mistakes, as said, so all in pencil and can be changed and updated. Uh, of course, once I decide the game is finished, then we usually have a prototype which is close to what I want to see, the board and the cards. So it's also an iterative process. So I'm not starting with lots of throwaway bad materials and then make the wonderful prototype. It, it, it emerges out of this mm. process, which means... The cards, the layout, everything has already been tested in this process. Interesting. But then I would still make a completely new, uh, wonderful prototype, uh, write up the rules properly um, with all the terminologies and everything properly in place, um, not spare any costs and components. Uh, yeah, it's important if you make a children's game, it's cheating almost, you make a children's game, and you give it to the publisher, they go to the kindergarten and they test it there. And if you take out little tiny black figures, so what? If you take out big chicken figures with colors and feathers, oh, yes, great game. So uh, the, the components do it. And uh, yes, yeah. this is part of the sales process. Uh, of course, the publisher is not stupid either. They see these things. But nevertheless, I, I put in the best which I can imagine, which is, of course, needs to be affordable. That's one of the other criteria. Right. Produce it, it doesn't work. But that's, so to speak, the end of the process, hopefully. <laughs> 
So, Reiner, one of the last things we'll ask and we'll wrap up here is um, I'm always fascinated um, what creators like to consume. So I'd be curious for you, because obviously you still and we can hear it, um, you know, over this last hour, how much you love this uh, love games. Uh, you mentioned fun more than once, which is which makes me very happy as somebody because I have so much fun playing your games. Right. But is there are there any games that you've come across recently that you didn't make? that got you excited um is there any games that you've looked at and gone you know what this is a this is a damn good game well i've just come back from the nuremberg toy fair and these fairs are very exciting to me but they also put the horror into me (laughs) and because um it, it always makes me come back and say you need to work harder you need to reinvent yourself see what the others are doing i have this famous saying People steal my ideas before I have them. Uh, so it is, uh, there, is a, there is a corner in the universe, which I think is reversed from it. The universe is nice to me. And I, I asked the universe to give me a next good idea. And some of them, I say, okay, great, like a, a collectible card game, but I could never do it. I mean, it's, it's not my style. But other things, I say, yes, that's exactly the one. And once you see it, you say, exactly, that's it. And so these are the moments which... Uh, in a way, a painful but great motivation to come back and say, uh, let's let's uh, see that. And let's also, uh, one thing is, let's see that challenge myself to be innovative enough. Uh, but also then let's see that when a game is done and ready, that I find the right publisher, pick, if I may pick, if I can't it's, it's a pick and choose from both sides. Uh, find the right publisher who can do the game justice. This is this is extremely important because the, a good game takes at least two parties. It takes me, it takes the design, but it also takes the publisher. The publisher yeah. to add the graphics, to add the marketing, also to add good ideas, or at least not make the game worse, and uh, to to create some one, so to speak, to put a single prototype into something which can then be mass-produced and really looks fun and really looks great. And finding the right publisher and also finding a publisher who can get reasonably quick to market for some innovations is very, very important because there, there are trends where things come up at the same time and you, the most frustrating thing is if you have a really good game and then a really good title, and then you have it there, you have it already in the prototype with a publisher, and then you see it uh, come out in the there. And this is this is life, and there's nothing you can do and say, oh, no. but I invented it simultaneously, it's parallel. No, it's, it's people don't accept that, and rightly, assume they want to see something new. So it's it's also this urge to get things out. So is, is there a game recently that uh, was a, an example of them getting the idea before you did? It was your idea. They just got <laughs> they just grabbed it earlier. I, I guess what I'm trying to find out, Reiner, is there something that has gotten you excited recently um, mm-hmm. as a player, not as a designer? Yeah, um, I did a Nintendo DS game uh, a long time ago, which had musicians and you could create different concerts by putting different musicians together. And there was also memory part in there where the stage opened and then the, the inter- intermission came and then one of the musicians was missing and you either hear it or say it. Yes, so there was lots of stuff. And I saw one of the fair where, you know, there are these pens these days, these uh, recognition pens when you type on something, they recognize you, they speak to you. Yes. Don't really know what you call it generically. Uh, and there was a game which showed me a concert and the different concert people there, and you can tap them. And I still today don't know how the game plays, but I just simply saw my game there. I said, Why are you so stupid and having this 20 years ago on the, on the DS and the handheld and not following through with the opportunities there? But right. there, are, there are myriads of these opportunities. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it, it is. And it is a wonderful world that we have so many different designers and the enjoyment of seeing so many different things. The question you haven't asked me uh, is, what's your favorite games or what do you play? And I don't have enough time to play other people's games. So therefore, I think, so when I see it on the fair, I can say, okay, this sparks me something. 
I don't even know how this game I saw actually plays, but I saw how it plays. Maybe it's so far away that I can still do my <laughs> but I guess not. Uh, oh, that's it, wonderful. It's, it's, uh, I, I rely on my playtesters that they bring to the table. They oh, you get it too close to this, or you do this, or you do this one. That's very important, and that's also important for the publisher to do another check, because inadvertently you might do something, and then once it's out in public, you can't retreat anymore. So yeah. that's also very important. But for me, it's, it's seeing this wonderful world, seeing some ideas, but then also not taking in too many specifics. Mm. I'm trying to make a, a virtue out of this necessity, not having enough time. You know, when you make your hobby to a profession, it's wonderful because you have a wonderful, fun profession, but you've lost the hobby. Yeah. And the hobby is just playing for fun. Yes? And that's uh, when we play, we test and test, and it's a lot yeah. of fun, but it, the other side goes away. And so I'm trying not to get too close into the other people's games. Mm. Because I said, when I write down rules, I need to take lots of decisions. I need to say, how do I handle this and how do I handle that? And the brain is a funny thing. Once you know one solution, you can't think of another one. If you don't know, it's so easy to find one completely not so far. Yes? Yeah. So, yes, we build on the shoulders of giants, but sometimes it's good not to know a shoulder of your own. That's fantastic. Well, Reiner, there is a lot of things that you can do on a Thursday afternoon or a Thursday evening that doesn't involve talking on a silly podcast. So I really appreciate you taking the time. You're very well welcome. It was a very fun, fun conversation. So thank you for being so patient with my long answers. Oh, you, I, like we said before we started, you're on the, you're on the podcast for long answers. That's what we love the most here. Um, and for those of you listening, you listen to this whole thing. And I appreciate you doing that as well. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Subscribe to Tabletop Talk and share it with your friends. Check out our content on YouTube and Twitch. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and stay updated on everything coming from Third Floor. All the links are in the show notes. Take care, Floorheads. Uh, oh, hey. Are you still here? Wow. Um, well, the episode is over, but if you're bored, why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month? Yeah, you can just scroll down. Scroll down and, yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.